Welcome back to another episode of the Leading Saints Podcast. If you've enjoyed content on this podcast, it's important that I tell you about the Leading Saints newsletter that we send out every week. This newsletter keeps you up to date on all the current Leading Saints content releases, including podcasts, articles, online events, and even live events that might be happening in your own area. In this newsletter, we also recommend some past episodes and written articles that you don't want to miss. Each week, we include additional leadership perspectives and thoughts that you can only find in the weekly newsletter, so you definitely don't want to miss out. To subscribe to the weekly newsletter, simply text the word LEAD to 474747 or visit leadingsaints.org slash subscribe. Again, text the word LEAD to 474747 or visit leadingsaints.org slash subscribe so you don't miss any future Leading Saints content. It's podcast time once again. This is the Leading Saints podcast. My name is Kurt Frankham, and I'll be your host and your co-host, because in this episode, we have Jessica Johnson, a member of our board of directors, who's actually going to co-host this interview with me. And I'll explain that why in just a minute. But before I do, I need to welcome all you newbies out there, those that have stumbled across Leading Saints, or maybe you got an email from somebody in your ward that said, hey, you should listen to this. And here you are listening to this podcast. But I promise you, the more you listen, the more you'll want to listen. And uh, that's because at Leading Saints, we have a mission of helping Latter-day Saints be better prepared to lead. So if you are serve in some context or live in some context where you are seen as a leader, I think you'll find the information here very helpful. Definitely check us out at leadingsaints.org and uh, join our newsletter. And uh, there's a plethora of information to dive into there. But on to the interview today. Now, in this interview, we talk with Dave Ulrich. And if you know who Dave is, you know who Dave is. And he is seen as a big deal in in many circles. Uh, He is a university professor and author, speaker, management coach, and management consultant. He is a co-founder of the company, the RBL Group, which stands for Result-Based Leadership. And our very own Jessica Johnson, who is a member of our board of directors, actually works for the RBL Group, and it does a lot of leadership coaching and training under the same principles that uh, Dave teaches. And so I thought, well, let's have her join me as a co-host, and we can fire off questions at Dave, and it turned out great. Dave has been somebody I've wanted to get on the podcast for a long time because he really is seen as a powerful leadership consultant, a, a, a leader in his own right in a field of leaders. And as many times he's been referred to as the father of modern day human resources, and he has gone around traveling the world, uh, consulting companies of all sorts, and uh, is very well versed, is full of wisdom. He's also been a a mission president up in Canada with his wife, and he shares so many stories during this interview of his time as a mission president and different things they tried and just how his leadership style was established there and and how effective it was. Really just fun, interesting stories. And he's also the husband of Wendy Ulrich, who probably more of you are familiar with. We've had her on the podcast a number of times, has written several books for Desert Book and is is accomplished in her own right. And so it's fun to get to Wendy's other half on here to explore and you can see just the dynamic couple that they are. So here's my interview with Dave Ulrich. All right, today I have the opportunity to be joined with uh, Jessica Johnson. How are you, Jessica? I'm doing well, thanks. Good. Now, you're on our uh, board of directors and are going to uh, be, I don't know if you're my first ever co-host, but whatever it is, uh, you're going to be my co-host during this interview. 
That's very exciting. I'm happy to be awesome. here. Thanks, Kurt. So together we are uh, connecting with uh, Dave Ulrich. How are you, Dave? Great to see you. Thank you, Kurt and Jessica. It's great to be with you. Awesome. Now, your uh, last name may sound familiar to many of the listeners. I know that your first and last name is quite well known in the uh, the leadership uh, world or the the human resources world and the secular world. But uh, do you feel like your wife Wendy is maybe a little more famous in the uh, in the Latter Day Saint world? You know, I'm I'm a charter member of the club, married nice. up, and uh, Wendy is very well known and appropriate well known. I'm a uh, so lucky to be married to Wendy. She uh, deserves the attention she gets. She's very, very thoughtful uh, about the work she does. Yeah, and, and I will link to the the several interviews that we've done with Wendy, and definitely check out her books. You'll you'll find them in Desert Book and whatnot, and and they're they're great reads. So, so Dave, for you, I mean, how do you usually describe yourself? What is it that you do for for work, and what how have you forged your career? Mostly, I work in uh, for Jessica in uh, <laughs> no. I'm a professor at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, and I work there. I've been there for a long time, a long time. And then I, I look at organizations, and I try to study how organizations work and think and act and feel and write and do some consulting. Uh, in a previous lifetime, I used to travel. <laughs> Nobody travels anymore. Uh, but, uh, but I observe organizations, try to make sense out of them. Awesome. And many times, uh, I know people have been have, have tagged you the the is it the modern day father of, of human resources? Is that what you hear often? <laughs> well, I've heard that. I'm not sure. I'm proud to be a father of anybody, but our kids. There's a picture <laughs> of our kids. So, oh, okay, uh, that's a picture of my uh, generation. So, yeah, I'm uh, I've done a lot of writing in my colleagues and I together. We've done a lot of writing in human resources and. Uh, continue to enjoy that field. Nice. And so when you do travel around and do some consulting, is that generally in the, the context of, of what people are looking for your help? Uh, no, I do about half of my consulting with business leaders around how do you create organizations and cultures and talent systems that help a company succeed in the marketplace. And about half of my time with the HR group. So about half business and half HR. Gotcha. Awesome. And uh, born and raised in the church, a pretty traditional upbringing? Pretty traditional. Born and raised in, in the church. My, I'm the one genealogy stream goes way back to uh, Joseph Smith's time. And the other, my father was the first member in his family. So born and raised in the church and, uh, and lucky enough to still be a part. Nice. You know, Kurt, I might just add, not only is Dave like a fabulous teacher, instructor, facilitator, but he's also a great learner. And I learned so much of that from him because he's a voracious reader and he's always getting new insights and adding new, you know, content. He almost trades over his content. What is it like 25%? It feels like every year, Dave, he's always coming up with new stuff. He's also a really fabulous mentor and working for the organization that he and Norm Smallwood founded. I've been there for 10 years and have really appreciated the mentorship that Dave has offered me there. Boy, you read that just the way I wrote it. Uh, <laughs> no, you're very kind. Thanks, Jessica. I love to learn. That's my passion. And uh, um, when I was in college decades ago, before either of you were probably born, I was going to go to law school. I took a course in organizational behavior, which was a new field by a man named Bonner Ritchie, LDS man. Uh, some folks would remember him. He taught at BYU and at Utah Valley. He captured my imagination. He said, show me what you learn about the organizations where you live, where you work, where you play, where you worship, and write it up. So I was an English major. I'd write a paper, The Sources of Power in Paradise Lost, How King Lear Uses Influence to Drive Change, 
William Foot White, The Ideal Organization Man. That's Beowulf. Anyway, I wrote for Bonner a uh, 10 to 15 page paper for 15 weeks. And he called me in at the end of the class and he said, what are you going to do? And I said, I'm going to law school. He said, that's crazy. And he convinced <laughs> me to come into organizational behavior. He's still a great mentor with Paul Thompson and others. And I still remember calling my mom and saying, and my dad and saying, you know, I don't want to go to law school. I want to study OB. And they thought that meant obstetrician. And so they thought, oh, our son's going to be a doctor. And I said, no, it's organizational behavior. And they said, what is that? And I said, I don't know, but it's fun. Wendy, my wife, who you referred to, is a very good psychologist. She has told me for decades I have OCD, which is not obsessive compulsive disorder. It's organizational compulsive disorder. Uh, I reorganize restaurants, churches, warehouses. Jessica knows this. I'm horrible to travel with because we'll go to dinner and we'll be eating. I'll say to the manager, you know, I could improve your productivity six and a half percent. Let me give you some ideas. And uh, I'm cursed with that OCD. And I've had it for 40 years. Wow. I, I was in, as far as uh, Bonner Ritchie. So is, you know, I often think if I would go do college again, I'd probably go the organizational behavior route because I've had such a developed such a passion in leadership and organizations and so forth. But so was he the creator of this idea? I mean, is he the oh, pioneer no. of, or, oh, or does it go before Bonner, him? It, oh, it's been around for many, many years. There's okay. many roots of, uh, of this tree, but Bonner was a professor at BYU, brilliant, brilliant, brilliant teacher whose job it was to mentor people and to help them learn. And he pushed me and challenged me. He still does. We have a lunch together with him and Paul Thompson and Paul McKinnon and Ralph Christensen and Norm Smallwood, just a group of us every uh, month. And Bonner still challenges me. He says, Dave, when are you going to do something useful? Uh, <laughs> so I appreciate his uh, wisdom and Paul Thompson's, if you know Paul, great anchors of the field. Nice. So, and I know Wendy's talked about your uh, the opportunity you had to serve as mission president uh, along with Wendy, and th- I'm sure that was a great experience. I'm curious with this obsessive organizational uh, <laughs> organizational uh, what would you call it? O- OC- OCD, organizational compulsive disorder. Yes. So, I mean, walking into a calling like that, um, did you see like, as far as like reorganizing things and, and reapproaching some of those processes? Is, did that happen a lot on that mission? Every day, every day. I mean, that's where Wendy and I, every day we had a chance to think, so what can we do to lead these young men and young women to have a better experience? And we work so hard to find creative ways to build the organization uh, that sustain them and help them have a great experience. We came to love our missionaries, obviously, uh, but we came to really try creative things and, uh, and to help our organization as a mission move forward. And that was the, was it the Toronto mission or what? Montreal, Montreal, Montreal. Canada, Montreal, Canada. It was a great blessing. I found out after we were called, as I said, my roots in the church go way back. My uh, first ancestor was James Leithhead. He was 16 in Scotland and left Scotland to come to the new world. And he came to uh, that area. And at 16, lived in that area, met a young man named Parley Pratt got baptized, was ordained an elder by John Taylor, and then ended up leaving that area to go with the saints to Nauvoo and then West. And uh, we didn't know that. I didn't know that genealogy. I'll confess. I'm not a great genealogist. And it was just a sweet experience to kind of have the feeling that his image is, you know, 150 years ago, 180 years ago, we started the work here. It's time now for you to take up and, and move it forward. And uh, we, uh, we felt very blessed to have that heritage back in that area. 
Awesome. Just again, don't, don't let me uh, move too far past you. Any thoughts or questions? See, you, want to you said you tried a lot of different things. What did you find that was successful in, you know, the mission with, you know, the, working with the missionaries, keeping them engaged in the work, you know, that type of thing? You know, it's really interesting because a lot of times in the mission, the agenda is here's the goal, live the goal, look at the reports. We try to focus less on the goal. Now you need numbers. I mean, one of the missionaries said to me, I hate numbers. I hate numbers. Let me not do numbers. And I said, good, this transfer, we won't track any numbers. At the end of the transfer, it was a disaster. It was a disaster. Numbers are helpful. Did you teach? Did you follow up? And we did all the numbers. But we really fought, tried to focus not on the numbers as much as the people. And, and the message often in missionary work, and it's one that I still feel passionate about today, there's a line, if you served a mission, will you? Will you? The commitment pattern. Yeah. It's a horrible line because the goal of the gospel is not to make you keep a commitment. The goal of the church is to help you find the blessings of the gospel. And so we used to talk to our missionaries, here's a family you're teaching. Tell me how the gospel will bless them, even if they don't join the church. If they were living the principles that we believe, how would their lives be different? How would they be better? And we work so hard to help members and uh, investigators and missionaries the gospel is not here to curse you. It's not here to haze you with a set of rules. The gospel is here to bless your life. And so we work hard to find ways to, how do we make this a better experience for the missionaries? How do we help investigators recognize the blessings of the gospel? And that was a marvelous, uh, marvelous direction. I think the missionary program is starting to head that way. Uh, it's less about tracking numbers and daily accountabilities. Those are still important. It's more about what are the blessings of the gospel to the lives of those we meet. How will it bless them? How will it help them? So Jessica, yeah. that's the kind of uh, mindset we had going in. I think it's a great perspective. Great perspective. Yeah. And so I'm curious with that mindset, we're all, you're always sort of analyzing, rethinking, uh, trying to get a new perspective on what you're doing, what's working, what's not. How did that impact like a, a, a typical zone conference? Uh, you know, how did you uh, relay and train that information in that context? You know, it's it's fascinating, and I can tell lots of stories. I haven't told mission stories for a while. This is fun. Oh, good. Um, when we do a zone conference, we bring our leaders together, the assistants, the zone leaders, and say, what's going on in the mission that we could help missionaries learn from that will help them be more successful, to have a better experience? And we'd work really hard to come up with that message and that theme. And we tried to have a theme almost every month. Uh, it could be around finding people. It could be around sharing the gospel. It could be around teaching. Jessica, unfortunately, knows this. I prepare handouts and materials. So I've got like 24 zone conference handouts around themes of the gospel, just trying to give the missionaries a nourishment that will bless them. One of the most interesting experiences, and I'll just share an aside, it kind of tells me we had in Montreal mission and we were we had four zone conferences, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, in four parts of the mission around a fairly large mission. And we had been Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. We came back to Montreal Thursday night and uh, sat down with the assistants. And I looked, I'm going to get emotional here. And I said, we goofed. We got the theme wrong. It wasn't the right message at this time. And the assistants go, what are you talking about? I said, well, let's do the zone conference tomorrow. But I want to call the entire mission in Monday on P-Day. And we're going to do it again. And we're going to get the message right. Wow. By the way, that freaked out the missionaries because uh, we did the Friday. We sent out a message Saturday morning. The entire, uh, by the way, I'm not sure I'm supposed to confess this. I don't think you were supposed to do those things, but <laughs> all missionaries come together and we're going to have an all mission conference. And uh, I remember we stood up 180 missionaries. 
wondering what's going on. You know, on uh, President Orich and Sister Orich, the mission leaders have canceled zone conferences, called us all in, they've canceled P-Day. We had a very clever assistant. He said, I need to tell you, you need to guess why we're all together for this all-mission conference. Let me give you some reasons. Option one, Sister Orich has been called into church leadership. And everybody said, yeah, that's probably true. <laughs> Option two, um, something I, I shouldn't share with you all the options. Some of them were not very kind. Well, I'll share. I mean, this is our spirit of candor. <laughs> that's option right. Option two, something. Option three, President Overage wants to give the masturbation talk to everyone at the same time. Uh, option four. And and they went through it. A kind of a fun spirit. And uh, I don't even remember the message, but I remember feeling like, you know, this is the Lord's work. We didn't listen last week. And we gave a message we thought was right. Here's the right message. By the way, at the end of that zone conference, one of the things, because we had mission con, we had everybody in, I decided to do something a little different actually that morning. And again, this reflects some of my leadership style. I think leaders need to model and receive as well as to give. We had, I can't remember, 10 zone leaders and the assistants. They slept in our house in the mission home. I said, tomorrow morning at 8 a.m. before the conference at 9 a.m., I need a blessing. And I'm going to ask you, the mission leaders, to go up on the hill in Montreal with me and put your hands on my head and give me a blessing as mission president. I need to receive through your priesthood and your authority, your spirit, so that I can reflect that spirit to the missionaries. You know, I think that modeling is just sweet. And by the way, it wasn't just a show. I really felt that yeah. our missionaries needed to know. They hold the same priesthood I do. I needed to receive from them a blessing. And and I think we tried in the mission field to weave in a sense of spirituality and a sense of practicality all the way through. Because there's a sense of like, yeah, we have to, for these meetings, this training, but to make sure that you're really uh, prayerful in that approach, right? And that you're hopefully getting the message that- And uh, if we miss- Let's fix yeah. it. I mean, we missed. We did a zone conference that was wrong. And I don't even know what it was. But the spirit said, Dave, you goofed, Dave and Wendy. And and I go, you know, we did. Let's fix it. Let's not wait. And and I I hope we taught missionaries that, you know, God is present. He's willing to engage in our lives. He'll help us in some remarkable ways. So we had, uh, Jessica, to your comment, we had those kind of experiences more often than not, in in some really remarkable ways, the Lord it's the Lord's work, and we were trying to be good stewards of that work. Yeah, and and I think there's this uh, you know going back to modeling, like showing your missionaries that you're willing to be vulnerable and say I I, I missed it, you know, oh. and we're gonna we're gonna fix it. Right? I got a one story. Montreal is cold. I mean, it's really cold. It's one day we were in our car and the thermometer said minus twenty one, and it stayed there. And I thought, wow, it's really cold. And Wendy looked it up. That was as far down as the thermometer went. <laughs> and it's cold in the winter. Well, I really tried to go to the Lord and say, what should I do? The last six months, and for a whole bunch of fluky reasons, I was on a board of directors and the general authorities allowed me to go to the meetings. So in early January, I'm in Florida. I didn't tell all the missionaries I was in Florida. but And I go walking every morning. And Jessica's walked me into the ground. I'm just so embarrassed. I can't keep up with Dave's stride. Uh, trust me, trust me. <laughs> I'm just embarrassed to walk with her because I just feel like, uh. anyway, so I'm walking in this beautiful Florida golf course saying, okay, Heavenly Father, we have six months. What should I do? And the spirit said, you go out tracting with every missionary. And I said, no, I don't want to do that. It's cold. <laughs> and uh, yeah, this next, was, part, next idea. Yeah, next idea. <laughs> so I went out the next day. I said, Heavenly Father, what should I do? And the Spirit said, Look, I told you yesterday. So we canceled zone conferences. And for January, February, I went out with every team 
I, I begged him, you know, find somebody to teach. Well, that didn't happen very often. So I tracked it and uh, knocked on doors with 85. Te- but Wendy went with sisters. I went with the elders. What a sweet experience to go out and knock on doors when it's 10 below zero and to have fun with missionaries, to model for them a little bit what work is. And, and that was actually a sweet experience to, uh, to do that and to be a part of their lives. I remember a couple of times the missionaries were discouraged. I was discouraged. Tracting is obviously hard when it's so cold and people don't want to let you in. I said, I bet I can get in. I'll bet you making lunch, I can get in. I mean, we're not supposed to make bets at tracking. And, <laughs> and the doorbell rang, they opened the door and I said, I'll pay you $10 for a cup of water. And they let us in. And uh, now, I, I mean, and, and again, the, the spirit is just warm and engaging. And we had that experience often in the mission field to just ask the Lord, what is it that we could do that would be the most helpful? Again, I can tell lots of stories about yeah. that that were just really, really meaningful. Yeah, I, I love that because the it, I think the the natural approach would be to tell your your missionaries, hey, set up two great appointments. I'll be there. I'll meet you at the apartment. We'll go teach them. But yeah. to just say, no, we're gonna, I'm gonna be in the trenches with you. I'm gonna knock doors with you with no expectations. And when it's and, cold, yeah, when it's cold, and that that yeah. example I mean, showing them that you're willing to do what you're asking them to do. That's that's well, huge. And we yeah. tried, and I mean, we learned early on. And again, I hope these are lessons of leadership. To you know, I, Dallin Oaks had a line, leadership, uh, revelation on the run, do stuff and get revelation, but listen and take risks that are within the boundaries of the church. Early in the mission, we were told from Salt Lake, build from centers of strength. Don't have these little outline branches that are independent, not flourishing very well, where you dedicate missionaries. And so the second or third week, we go north of Montreal, six hours. It was actually a miracle. It's six hours if you drive 60 miles an hour. Wendy was asleep. Our car made it in three hours. It was one of those incredible miracle drives. Shouldn't joke about that, but uh, there was nobody on the road. So it's Sunday morning. I go walk in the mornings, and that's where I try to feel the Spirit. And the Spirit's, and I'm going, you know, we're supposed to close this little branch of 15 people, bring the missionaries back in. And And I'm a new mission president. I'm not a super spiritual, iconic person. And the spirit said, don't you dare, it's my branch. And I'm, whoa, Hmm. (laughs) what should I do? And the spirit said, you rededicate the city. And I said, I I don't know what that means. The spirit said, rededicate the city today. So I go to Wendy, she comes in. uh, I say, I think I'm going to rededicate the city. She said, what does that mean? I said, I don't know, but that's what (laughs) I'm supposed to do. So we go to church, we have the sacrament. I cancel the meeting. I say to the 15 members, let's go up on the hill. We live beneath our privileges. I'm going to exercise my priesthood and I am going to rededicate this city. And, and what a sweet experience that led us to rededicate uh, every city in the district where I was the district president. So over the next six months, we rededicated eight branches and eight cities and the church took off. We ended our mission with a stake there. And I think the Lord was willing to say, you know, if you're willing to bring your best efforts to this work and rededicate it. And we made it an important deal. We had the members in a branch, in a branch council, what are the blessings you would like for your branch? Uh, They'd write them up, they'd send them to me. I'd go to the temple and I'd take those blessings and I'd go sit and really ponder, is this what the Lord wants for that city? Um, I'm gonna confess, they were all in French and I speak lousy French. So I wrote the prayer, then I had a translator put it in good French. And, um, and then we had a day of rejoicing and a day of rededication. 
in uh, all the eight branches in the Quebec district. And what a sweet experience that I, th I think the Lord wants to bless us if we're willing. We used Alma 6 as the example. Alma put the church in order and then rededicated the city. And we did, I mean, you say, what things did we do, Jessica? Those are things you probably never heard about. We did those things as often as we could to let the missionaries feel the spirit of what it was we were doing. Yeah, I love the example, Steve. And I also feel, and it's probably just because um, I've heard your teaching in organization, in leadership, in human resources for so many years, that I feel this flavor of an outside-in perspective in everything that you're talking about. Let me describe that. It's the same message. A lot of people write about leadership, and Kurt, you've talked to so many. Leadership is authenticity. It's vision. It's values. Leadership is not what we know. It's not what we do. It's what we help other people know and do. Hmm. Leadership is not about our strengths. It's how we use our strengths to help others create their strengths. And the theory of that, that's what we did in the mission field. The goal of the gospel is not to teach people. It's to help people discover what those teachings mean for them. And a simple example, when I receive a gift or when I give Wendy a gift, the value of the gift is what she receives, not what I give. For example, my kids gave me a gift. I got to show this. This is cool. They made up a little book. This is about my dad. And we have 10 grandkids. And so this is a book about your great-great-grandpa Ulrich. And I can read this book to my grandchildren. And that's my dad with his truck and his service. That gift is meaningful to me because it allows me to do something with my grandchildren. Leadership is not authenticity. That's a very false positive. Leadership is the ability to create value in other people. That's an outside-in point of view. So when we go into a company, the first question we ask is not, what are your personal leadership strengths and skills? No, our question is, what do those you lead need to know more of or do more of? And so that mindset is mission president. Look at that investigator. What would the Lord want for her, for him, for that family? Uh, we looked at those missionaries. What would the Lord want for those missionaries? When I was a bishop, what would the Lord want for these members? And, and we used to really think about that as a bishopric. What can we do to give members a good experience? We're now serving at BYU. What do these young men and young women who are so skilled and so talented, what do they need? What do they want? What can we do to give them a good experience? That's the outside in logic, Jessica. What would you add to that? You've done this as much or more than me, Jessica. Well, you know, I was thinking about it. I've worked, you know, in leadership positions in different states. I've lived in a lot of different places. And almost invariably, people come up with a mission statement or a vision for the state um, or a ward or what have you. And many times, um, sometimes they'll publish that and, you know, have everybody have a nice glossy copy of it. And then we never refer to it again. Or I, I have been asked to speak on the topic and I've asked the state presidency. So um, help me understand how you created this. Like, what are the needs of the members that led to this? And they'll say, well, the spirit told us this is what it was supposed to be. And I don't want to make light of that, but it doesn't, it didn't for me have much of an outside in perspective. Like we understand the needs of the members of our state, of our ward and so on. And that helps us, you know, determine what mission we need or what vision we need and what we should all be driving toward. 
So I don't know that there's really a question in there, but I'd love to hear your thoughts. On I love other people. I, I mean, when I see mission statements and Jessica, we've done this uh, collaboratively as well. I see goals. I see objectives. I like to, I like simple solutions, Kurt. So two words, so that, so that we want to be more innovative as a company so that we deliver our financial results. That's still inside. Hmm. So that our customers will have products and services that help them. Now you're getting outside the enterprise. As a bishop, we want to give people a great experience. We want to do great sacrament meetings so that our members have a good experience. They want to come to church. And so we said, when we were a bishopric, we said, here's our goal. We want the three hours, there were three-hour blocks back then. I wasn't in the morning, afternoon. I'm not that old, but three-hour block. <laughs> what can we do as a bishopric to give members that those three hours are three of the best hours of your week? You know, yeah. What a simple message. What a simple agenda. And so, for example, sacrament meeting. How do we do better talks? We found in, in our ward, we had a man who was a brilliant teacher Every Sunday, he met with everyone who, every fast Sunday, everyone is going to give a talk that month. And in that Sunday school lesson, he made them go through their talks to make sure that they brought the right feeling and the right spirit, because talks are a piece. Teaching, we worked with teachers. We did so many things to try to say, our goal is that every member say, boy, my experience at church today was three of the best hours of my week. And they're all over the map. There's spirituality in there. There's sociality. That's the kind of stuff that we really worked on. And uh, I hope most leaders do that. I think a lot of leaders actually don't. I've I've been in some, with some leaders who, uh, you know, let's uh, let's read the handbook. Let's do the five steps. I love to start with who are my members? What is it we can give them? How can we bless them through the leadership that we provide? Yeah. And I've, I was actually just having a conversation with the bishop uh, last week, sort of around this topic where we were talking about, uh, you know, what what he's hoping to accomplish as a bishop of his ward. And it's easy, you know, you talk about this outside in, and maybe this is a pitfall we can, you can speak more to, but sometimes we'll get, you know, called as a bishop or in a leadership position. And we finally, we sort of feel like, oh, finally, I can fix all those problems I've been seeing for years. Like we need to be better ministers. We need to do this and that. And we sort of project our perspective on what we think our members need. But it sounds like there's an extra step of really going to the members or and figuring out what is it that you need? I, I have these inclinations or assumptions of what you need, but what is it that you re- really need? Is that accurate? Absolutely. Only uh, sometimes you go to members. I think in our field today, we love analytics. We love data. We love statistics. I think good leaders are also good anthropologists. Observe. Mm-hmm. Keep your eyes open. When you're a, a Relief Society president, an Elders Corn president, young men, young women's president, observe those you're leading. What do you not see? What do you see? What are you feeling? And I think sometimes those qualitative observations, and we can go collect data, you can interview people, you can observe, but just listen and observe and then solicit input. I think that helps us as leaders begin to define, again, the question, what is it we can do that will bless the lives of those we lead? And how do we build the right infrastructure to provide some of those blessings? That's one thing I love about the church. And one of the things I love about that, again, a more personal story, is that doesn't necessarily apply just to members of the church. For me, the beauty of the gospel is what we know will bless everybody. We recently had a very sad experience. Somebody, my son and I knew, 
who was a, a wonderful, wonderful human being, and again, I'll probably get emotional here, had a son who committed suicide. So Mike, our son and I go to the funeral and we're in this wonder, this traumatic setting. I mean, it's, it's a, a religious setting. Before we go into the chapel and the auditorium, there's this ante room and, and there's tears and there's pain. Wonderful people uh, whom I didn't know except a couple of those who we did know. And I looked at Mike and I said, Mike, we hold the priesthood. Let's go pronounce a priesthood blessing on this service. And he said, Dad, what does that mean? And I said, the gospel and the priesthood, Mike, isn't for you and me. It's for this family who just lost a son. Can we go invite the spirit of the Lord to bless them today and forevermore that they'll feel the comfort of the Savior? And we did. Now, by the way, we didn't stand up and say, everybody be quiet. The Mormons are here. (laughs) We went into a quiet corner and we just said, by the power and authority of the Holy Melchizedek Priesthood, which we hold, we invite the Spirit today to join us. Bless this family with the love and with the uh, knowledge of what the atonement means in their life. And you know, they'll never know it. I'm never going to share that story with the family. But I know that God wants to bless his children. And I've had experiences where when I'm giving a talk, an impression will come. Tell this story. Okay, I'll tell it. <laughs> And somebody comes up and says, that story was for me. And just, I think the Lord wants not just to bless our members. I mean, obviously we're blessed because we're part of the system. We've received the Holy Ghost. But I think we can be vehicles that other people can feel that spirit as well. You know, and Kurt, I want the audience to know that Dave practices this when he is teaching. And he travels the world in non-COVID times and is on a plane more than anyone I know. But when he stands in front of a group, because I've had the opportunity to witness this, he will share quotes from church leadership. Um, (laughs) He will share stories of his mission and so on to leaders in Fortune 500 companies around the world. Dave, you're just... It was so fun today, Jessica. I had an interview with somebody in London and she's doing a podcast. And okay, final question. What books have influenced you the most? And I held it up. By the way, the members will get it. I said, my Bible. And by the way, it's not the Bible, but I'm not going to say Book of Mormon. But my Bible, and I think eternal truths are matter, and I'm not afraid of that. I don't impose it, but I uh, have right on my desk. And I hope those who are listening will respect that those of us who value religion, we value. And she said, oh, wow, I haven't been to Sunday school in a long time. And I said, well, you know, it doesn't work for everybody, but there are great principles. And I told a couple stories. And uh I think we can do that without being holier than thou, without being preachy. You know, would you like to know more? I'll send two young people by. Nah. Uh, that, <laughs> yeah. that, that man who lost his son, he and his wife, I think, had a priesthood blessing that day. And by the way, I've done that more than once. Those are, yeah. those are the blessings of the gospel that are so powerful. And as church leaders, what a cool thing as young women president, as Relief Society president, Sunday school president, elder quorum, to have the keys, to literally know if you're observing and feeling, how can I bless God's children today through my calling? And and I just, I find those delightful privileges. Yeah. So going back to this uh, outside in leadership, you know, if there's a an elder quorum president or relief society president that really values that and wants to start implementing it, is there, like, what? how would you coach them as far as where to begin with really being an effective outside-in leader? Call Jessica. <laughs> Perfect. 
I'd love to answer it, Jessica. Yeah, I, I, if I were sitting with them, I'd say, tell me what your leadership style is. Tell me your leadership goals. And they'll talk about, I set visions, I set purpose. And I said, you know, you've missed the key to leadership. Leadership doesn't start with your style, your goals. It starts with who is it you're trying to bless? Who is it you're trying to serve? Tell me about those you steward, Relief Society. Tell me about the women. What are they struggling with? Elders Quorum, what are the men thinking about? What can you as a leader then do institutionally? And the church is so creative and flexible. Don't ask permission, just go do it. Uh, I shouldn't have said that, but what can you do? <laughs> Let's do it all mission zone conference. What can you do to help those people fill that need? And in your daily prayers, are you spending time feeling and sensing what those members may need? And you'll feel that. And that's where I'd go outside in is don't just build your personal leadership point of view, create your personal leadership brand by starting with those you lead. Hmm. That's helpful. And, you know, one one thought that comes to mind that sort of there's some tension in this concept with, uh, I think a lot of times as leaders, we value obedience so much that we want to make sure we're in line with the handbook. And so we may, you know, obsess over, you know, every paragraph there and make sure we're in line. And, and so we often, instead of looking towards what our quorum needs or what our ward needs, we often say, well, just what does the handbook say? Okay, the handbook says that, so we're going to do that. So, how do we work out this tension? Obviously, we respect the handbooks. It's not like we're saying don't read the handbook or listen to it. It's, it's got its place. But uh, how do you do that while still maintaining that obedience to handbooks and policies and so forth? What, what would you say, Kurt? Great question. <laughs> wait, wait a minute. Who, who, who's the interviewer? No, uh, I mean, to me, this is really where what I love about leadership is that when we consider the handbook, there's so much more wiggle room in the handbook. You know, they, they may give general policies and practices, but I think there's a lot of, you know, ideas, a lot of things we can try that's going to be applicable for our area because it's it's almost impossible for the church to develop a handbook that's going to fit for every ward, every country in the world. And so, so there's, Just, to me, there's a lot yeah. of room. Jessica, you were going to answer, and then I'll provide a thought or two. <laughs> well, I think that's actually the, the absolute way that the church has been kind of moving over the past few years is to more, you know, localized interpretation of you, for the needs of your congregation, you know, the individuals that you're working with. And so I think the handbook has become more principles that you can then apply depending on you know, what's happening where you are. And I love that. I think the same goes for how um, missionaries are teaching, you know, the lessons. They're not prescripted. It's come, it's, it's not come follow me. What is it? Preach my gospel. And, um, and it's helping them teach more principles versus uh, road memorized, you know, lessons. And so I love that progression because it just speaks to the fact that we are a global church and things are going to be different. And it also is exactly what President Nelson is pushing us to do, is seek to understand what the Lord is saying to you for those whom you have stewardship over. And then, you know, the Lord and the Spirit will help you figure out what to do and what actions to take so that you can meet their needs. You know, this is not a new issue. I love the concept of paradox. Our research, you've worked with Bob Quinn, who's done some great work on paradox. You navigate paradox. You don't solve and you don't manage it. And so you have these two extremes in the church, the liahona, the iron rod. 
handbook versus agency. I mean, and you can get carried away on either side. I mean, you can get too far. Let's be creative and start doing really strange things. And you can get too rigid on the handbook. And I think the discretion to know how to navigate between those two is what inspiration means. Boyd Packer used to always say, uh, there is one handbook, look up. And, uh, <laughs> and, and that's where you're going to find that. Now, by the way, if you get too carried away to one side or the other, you get in trouble. And I think the handbook has patterns that we should follow. But there are events that are different. When I was a bishop, we had a, an incident where the young men in the ward I was in went to a temple. They went on a Friday night, Saturday morning. There was an incident that morning where one of the young men didn't want to go to the temple after he woke up. They had an incident with the leader. They had words that were not pleasant. Anyway, really bad stuff. They came home Saturday. This young man was just fit to be tied. Uh, terrible. Again, the, the spirit, it just feels that emotion again. I find out about it Sunday morning in bishopric meeting day. Bishop, there was an incident at the temple. And I looked at my counselors and I said, you know, sacrament meeting is a good place to be unless there's something more important. And I said, you've got sacrament. I'm going to go knock on the door of this young man. Went to his door. He wouldn't come to church. Didn't want to get out of bed. I stood there and finally he opened it. He said, who's this? And I said, it's the bishop. He said, it's church time. I said, I don't need to be at church today. Let's talk. And he and I spent an hour talking. You know, church is the right place to be. That's the handbook. Do you do your duty? Yeah. That day, the right place to be was sitting with this young man and listening to his frustrations. And, you know, what happened? And we had a sweet talk. Now, I mean, I wish it ended happy. You know, it didn't solve all the problems. But the message is, as a leader, there's a pattern. There is a pattern we follow. And we should follow that. But there also are ways the Lord can use us as leaders if we're open to respond to those those cases. I mean, of the whatever it was, thousand sacrament meetings I had, I probably didn't spend more than two or three doing. We had young couples. I shouldn't tell all the stories, but uh, we had young couples trying to bless babies because we had a, a married student ward at the University of Michigan. They bring their families in. It's a big event. It's a big deal. And this one little kid cried. And it was horrible. The father was flustered, just didn't work. And as the meeting came to a close, as the closing hymn, I, during the closing hymn, I went and said to him, could you bring your family into the Relief Society room? And he said, why? And I said, you know, the meeting's over. And we came in and I said, we're going to do this again. This is a special event. You brought your parents here. You brought your siblings here. I don't care what prayer you gave. Let's just do this again and uh, make it so that you have. Now, by the way, you don't do that every time. Hey, Bishop, I didn't like the words I said. Can I, can I have a redo? No, <laughs> right. you, can't, you can't have a redo. But boy, I hope our leaders communicate. I'm here as a leader to give you a good experience. You as a father blessing this sweet child when it's screaming, that wasn't a good experience for anybody. Let's make it right. And so I I, man, yeah. I didn't think that's where we'd go with this, uh, this talk. And again, you can't do that every Sunday. How do I do right. weird stuff this Sunday? We used to have in Ann Arbor, somebody who liked to have his Sunday school class at the local Danny's restaurant. I, uh, called him in. I, <laughs> I said, like you know, yeah, well, <laughs> that's not a good pattern. Uh, right. and I said, you know, with all due respect, brother, I love you to death, but you're not going to have Sunday school <laughs> class at Denny's every Sunday. I mean, you could go down the church and join another church and do that, but you're not going to do that here. And and you got to manage that with a sense of humor. And anyway, that's the blessings though of church leadership is I think I'll bet you felt it, Kurt. I know, Jessica, you've shared some of this in your leadership positions where you feel this incredible outpouring of love from the Lord 
to his children and her children, the little heavenly parents that get both. And, and we become vehicles through which that love gets expressed. And uh, Jessica, I know you've had those experiences. Any, anything you want to share? I, I just feel those are the experiences that are so meaningful. Well, I, I do think it comes one by one, just as the Savior ministered one by one. But when the Lord can open your eyes to see how they see a person, it really is. I, I'm, I'll follow Dave and the feelings of emotion that come up with that. But when it's almost like some veil is removed and you're able to see that, I think you're able to help and serve so much better when you can do that. It makes you a better leader when you have that connection with the spirit. And I'm not going to say that that happens all the time. And I'm sure that's more about my own worthiness and readiness for those experiences. And so that's what I seek and strive for in those positions so that I can, you know, help and serve in that way. Yeah, that's awesome. I'm sure you've had those experiences and those you interview do. And some of those are very sacred. I mean, the things I've shared today are kind of personal. And But that's, boy, if there was something we could teach leaders, love those you lead, outside in. Think about them. What's the value I'm creating for somebody else? And how do I use the church symbols? Uh, again, mission experience. I wanted to send a message to the missionaries, the first zone conference of the sacred ordinances of the church and how they bring us together. So first zone conference, nobody knows who I am. The good news is I have a secret arsenal. It's called Wendy Ulrich. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Wendy, would you give a talk on the sacrament? And we had everybody sit every other row. And she gave a beautiful talk on the sacrament, the power of the sacrament. I had two of the uh, missionaries, bless it. And I passed the sacrament one by one to every missionary in my mission, in the first week of my mission. And when I took the sacrament, I looked that young man or young woman in the eye and I gave them the sacrament of the Lord's Supper and said, this is a symbol of what Christ left his apostles with. It's what draws us together. By the way, for bishops, I'm not sure that's authorized, but when I became a bishop, my first ward council, I passed the sacrament to every member of the ward council. I had prepared it. We came to ward council. We did a little bit of administrative stuff. And I said, you know, we have 15 minutes left. Let's remember why we're meeting. And I knelt down and I pulled the bread out and the water out. And I said, this is why we're here. And the last Sunday I was bishop, I passed the sacrament to my ward council. Now, what I'm trying to say is, again, maybe that's too liberal for some, but these are the symbols of our church that we don't, you know, if you did that every week, that's wrong. I, I, I personally don't agree with that. But to use those symbols to allow the Lord to bless those he loves. I mean, boy, my missionaries, some of them looked me in the eye and they started to cry because their mission president was passing them the sacrament. And boy, was that a sweet experience. And again, it just... I was the mission president over a district. And so again, I prayed, go tracting with all your missionaries. Then another spirit said, go out with every branch president. You have eight branches and visit one by one, the members of that branch. So I'd call the branch president. I'd say, you don't know what I'm going to do to you. <laughs> I'm going to show up Friday night at six o'clock. We're going to go half an hour, Friday, six to 10, Saturday, eight to eight and Sunday, eight to eight. And we're going to visit in the home every one of your branch members that we can get to. What a sweet experience. We offered priesthood blessings. We gave the sacrament to those who'd not been to church. Uh, by the way, we ate a lot of cookies because <laughs> people in Montreal are the Quebec people are the most gentle and kindest people in the world. But I did that with eight branch presidents 
and I tried to model for them what it meant to minister. And, and boy, were there some sweet experiences. And by the way, it's not about me, but we've never right. had the quote mission president in my, in my home and president. That's so kind. What can we do to bless you? Well, I've really been struggling with this. Would you like a priesthood blessing? Yes. And then I turned to the branch president. When I was bishop, I had a philosophy. I'm a donut hole bishop, <laughs> partly because <laughs> I travel a lot. Somebody would call and say, I need a blessing. And my answer was always, who's your home teacher? Go to your home teacher to get a blessing, not me. Because I think my job as the donut hole is to get you to build a relationship with the people you're close to. By the way, that made home teaching relevant. We ended up with 90, 95% home teaching because I was encouraging home teachers. People are going to, by the way, if the bishop needs to talk to someone around issues that are stewardship of the bishop, I would do it. But more often than not, go to your home teacher, get your home teacher over to give you a blessing. And if I can assist after they've done it, let me know. We found home teachers when they were fulfilling those opportunities. Boy, did they have better experiences. Anyway, you're letting me babble. I'm going down memory lane. <laughs> this is great. This is horrible. No, these are these are really helpful. And I just love, you know, going back to that question, I just, I love what I'm learning here is that sort of that that space between the handbook and the needs of in, of the ward is often filled with inspiration. And yeah. and you'll just constantly seek after that inspiration and, and follow it when you can. And, and sometimes it manifests in very unique ways, right? Well, and so. as Jessica said, that doesn't happen a lot. So you yeah. go to sacrament meeting and sleep and um, and, 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 but, but I just, I honestly believe the Lord wants to bless his children and yeah. his father and mother in heaven want to bless their children. And if we are sensitive to that more often than not, we'll find those opportunities. Yeah. Yeah. So, really helpful. Dave, I, I love the examples that you've shared. And I also know that you're not saying go out and try this, right? You're saying seek your own inspiration. But I Absolutely. also wonder if some of our listeners might be thinking, well, that works for Dave Ulrich, but that wouldn't work for me. I'm a total introvert. Like, I can't see myself going out and doing that. Talk about that for me, Dave, because I know you a little bit better. What do you know about me, Jessica? <laughs> Dave, on the scale of extrovert to introvert, pings way over to the introvert side. 10 0. I am a total introvert. I am so grateful for the pandemic. No, that was a horrible way to say it. I am. I love sitting in my office. I think there's a great time to be an introvert and there's a great time to serve and knowing how to manage that paradox. By the way, my first response and Jessica, you said so well, if you're doing what Kurt says or Jessica says or Dave says, you're failing the message. The message is do what's right for you. And it doesn't always work. I've had so many times, I have blown it so many times. <laughs> I should share the times I've blown it so bad. <laughs> Quick anecdote. I'm teaching yeah. at the University of Michigan, our two-week executive program. We have people to our home on Sunday night, which is a Sabbath, but I think it was the right thing to do. Monday morning, this was a number of years ago. A man comes up, his, he's from Monterey, Mexico, and he says, Dave, I was in your home Sunday night. You remember the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints? I say, I am. He said, after I was in your home, I knew I was in a home of a member of the church. The Spirit told me I was wrong. I'm leading the opposition to your temple in Monterey, Mexico. And the Spirit told me I was wrong all night. What should I do? By the way, I'm a, I quickly get on the phone and go to the Supreme I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. Long story short, a week later, I show up in Monterey with Elder Scott and in Area 70, he's a member of the 12, and we're having our prayer. By the way, I can't believe I'm confessing this. 
we're having our prayer to go visit with this man in the opposition. And we're walking down the hallway to the elevator. I say, Elder Scott, I have a solution. He said, what's that? Put a sombrero on Moroni. Whoa, (laughs) was that inappropriate (laughs) on every dimension. He looked at me, didn't smile. He said, we don't do that. That's rude. Oh, that was so bad. Anyway, I've done those kinds of things and, and repented. It was just such a rude thing to say. And I'm really sorry about that. On the other hand, it happened. And Elder Scott was so good. And we got a temple. We discovered what the issue was. He resolved it that day. I'll tell you, it's so cool. Here's the uh, biggest Catholic church. Here's the boys' school. Here's an empty lot. And here's the girls' school. So this empty lot is where we're building the church or the temple. That's the proposed lot. So big church, boys' school, Mormon church, girls' school. And I may have those backwards, but an empty lot. And the opposition said, we don't want the Mormon church next to our biggest cathedral, boys' school, girls' school. And Elder Scott said, we are so sorry. We don't want to be in your space. Would you find us a lot that meets these criteria on a bus line, this zoning, and we'll trade you? Guess what? Over the next six weeks, the Catholics who were opposed to the church found the temple lot for the Monterey Temple. And then the church traded him. Wow. What a sweet leader. I mean, he just apologized. He said, I am so sorry. Legally, we could build a temple on this lot next to your, to your church and the boys' school. We don't want to do that. Would you work with us? Go find us a lot. I think the Lord does intervene. I mean, what a sweet intervention. We have this man to our house. He sees our stuff. Same stuff you have in your house and apartment. Those are the kinds of things that are just such cool experiences. And don't say put a sombrero on Moroni. That's just a very rude, just dismissive thing. I've humbled and learned my lesson. Nice. Well, I appreciate you sharing. Uh, I mean, wonderful stories, awesome stories. I wanted to ask you, you know, obviously I, I email with your wife here and there and I would let her know so that we're... So <laughs> But... Uh, you know, I let her know that we uh, would be chatting today. And she said that uh, this pandemic time has been very reflective for you. And uh, what, what are some thoughts or moments of inspiration you've had during this time, especially when you're used to being on so many planes? You know, it was a, we all have different reflections. I just posted a piece today. I think, uh, and Jessica knows sports better than me. She was a sideline sports reporter, for those who don't know. Uh, Jessica knows better. Pro athletes don't get better during the season. They get better during the off season. And if we think about the last six months as a personal and professional off-season, are we using that off-season to improve our skills? And I think I have, I made a decision in March. I can still tell you where I was. Uh, We were teaching Institute at BYU on Wednesday night. I think it's March 11th. I was teaching. Wendy was doing a talk somewhere. I get in the car to drive from BYU to Alpine, Utah, where we live. Wendy calls and says, did you hear? And I said, what? The NBA season was just canceled what is this a, you know, is this, am I on candid camera? What's going on? Boom. As of that day, the NBA season canceled and it just was a domino effect. I struggled that weekend. What do I do with this? And a friend of mine called me, Keith Lawrence, and he said, Dave, if you're going to be a thought leader in this field, step up. I have a lot of friends. They've taken this time out. They've walked away. And I said, okay, I'm going to step up. So in the last five months, and this is not meant to be grandiosity at all, I had my secretary put together because I didn't know it. I've done over 100 webinars in the last five months in almost every country in the world. Jessica's got this map of the world, and I'm putting pins in all the countries. 
Uh, <laughs> last night was Thailand. And I've decided that I'm an introvert. My instincts were let it go, go hide, let this world end. And then the earthquake hit the next Tuesday or Wednesday, which just complicated our world in Utah. But I said, okay, I'm going to step up. So what have I learned? Even with that introversion, invite people into my office, see the pictures, see the clutter, share stories that are really more personal. Tell people, what's the best book you ever read? The Bible. And to be able to say that and say, I think the principles in that Bible or the Quran or some of the other religious books are powerful today as they were when they were written. And to have people go, wow, I hadn't, you know, I've interviewed 150 people. Nobody's ever said that. Again, okay, let's move on. That's, that's life. But, but I've decided my take hurt as I stepped up and have really tried to make that happen. Awesome. That's, that's inspiring for sure. Uh, Jessica, any, any final questions before we wrap up? I mean, if not, that's fine. But. No, uh, Dave has given a lot of really great information. Stories I haven't heard. I was thinking of one around shoes on your mission. Um, oh, but, uh, all right. so we're, I'll yeah. share it. We got to hear the shoes story. We work so <laughs> hard to give these missionaries a good experience. And again, every zone conference is a touch point and the interviews are a touch point. And I decided one zone conference where during zone conference, I interview 180 missionaries. I decided I was going to polish all of their shoes. I mean, the metaphor of feet in the Bible is so good, washing the feet and all of that washing and anointing and the symbolism. And so I went and got shoe polish, got brown, black, bronze. I got the little pads and they come in one at a time. And I'd say, take your shoes off. No, take your shoes off. My feet stink. I know that. Take your shoes off. And I'd put powder in it. I polished 180 pairs of shoes. And what a cool experience. One woman came in from an Asian country, a sister. She couldn't do it. She had never have a leader in that culture where you have hierarchy do that kind of service for her. But I made her take her shoes off. I polished her shoes. She sat and wept and I wept with her. And to say, you know, this is what symbol, it's not a complicated symbol. The savior is here to polish our shoes, to, to get us ready to serve. That was a cool, by the way, I did it. My fingers were black and brown. And I thought <laughs> I will never make money as a shoe polish person in the airport. They're not all that good. But what a sweet experience to polish 180 pair of shoes over a period of time. I mean, that's the kind of stuff that just, oh, here's a cool thing. You probably can't see it. That's a picture of missionaries in Montreal. So we decided as a Christmas gift, we went to a gallery. We found an artist in Quebec and we had two pictures painted, one with two young men and one with two young women. And then we printed them as uh, Christmas gifts. And, and so every missionary in our mission has two pictures, eight by tens, of two missionaries street contacting. And in our basement is two sisters going door to door. I mean, that's the kind of stuff. It's so cool. To, if you keep trying to be creative, you'll find ways to bless people. That was such a cool Christmas gift to say, and you can't see it. It's dark in this room. But to say, this is, I have my lights off. This is the... Uh, this is our gift to you that you'll be able to put this on your wall for the next 25 years and show your kids and your grandkids. This is where you serve. Anyway, that's the kind Love of it. stuff we tried to do. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. I've got one more question for you, but this has been so enlightening and helpful. And it's fun having a, a co-host uh, with me as well, Jessica, you did great. And uh, um, if people do want to get in touch with you or we'll l- learn more about your stuff or what you do, where would you send them to uh, the connect? The easiest is uh, LinkedIn. I decided I've written a lot of books and they don't sell. 
and so uh, I decided to uh, two years ago to start posting on LinkedIn. I post every Tuesday. I've now posted a hundred longer articles and a hundred shorter articles every Tuesday I post. And you can find me there and uh, hopefully follow. And, and that's the easy place. Awesome. Or uh, we have a company. I should mention it. St. Jessica is part of our company. Uh, www.rbl.net. rbl.net. Uh, stands for Results-Based Leadership. It's a book we did. And get a hold of Jessica. She's the one who can make all these things work. That's I, I agree with that for sure. So last question I have for you, Dave, is you reflect back on uh, your many leadership assignments and the opportunities you've had to be a leader. How have those experiences helped you become a better follower of Jesus Christ? My sense is there is power in the priesthood. And I like those three words. And the power that Christ wants to give us to realize and become our full potential. And I love that idea. Power is not about control. It's not about resources. Power is about empowering others. And I see in the teachings and doctrine and church of Jesus Christ, a set of principles that will enable me to be empowered. And my job as a leader is to then empower others, that the ultimate power in the priest, this comes from Wendy's latest book, by the way, because I learned a lot from her. But the ultimate power of the priesthood is the ability to empower others. I see that in my secular world. I'll tell one final story. There's a a leader I've coached who is probably the most impressive leader I've ever met. And some of you may know the story. I don't think I'll share the name. It's not that relevant. Born in the Philippines in a hut, grew up extremely poor. At age six, went to a Catholic high school, sat in the back corner because she couldn't read. She couldn't do any of the schoolwork. By the end of the year, she's in the front of the room doing the work, fast forward, valedictorian in high school, goes to a university, BYU valedictorian, goes to Harvard, goes to uh, MIT, joint PhD, speaks six languages, works for the U.S. State Department. One of the most brilliant, brilliant leaders I've ever known. She becomes the head of a large university. And some of you may know her. I don't need to share. You can find her story. It's a great story. Everybody wants her to tell her story. I sit down with her. The job of a leader is not that you tell your story. The job of a leader is that you help 40,000 students create their own story. To me, that's the Savior. The Savior doesn't want me to follow him and become him. The Savior wants me to learn from him to become what I can become, that the power of the priesthood is his ability to empower me. That's that same outside-in logic applied, I think, to the gospel. This leader is probably one of the best leaders I've ever met because she and her cabinet are empowering thousands of students wherever they come from to realize their potential. They're not going to be her. Nobody's going to be her. Nobody speaks six languages, joint degrees. I mean, nobody has her skill set. But that's not what leadership is. Leadership is the process of making others better. That's what I get from the Savior is his desire to help each of his the Lord's children and the Savior's brothers and sisters realize their potential. And I'm so grateful that we have a church that institutionalizes that. And that concludes our interview with Dave Olderich. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. I mean, so many just gems, uh, pearls of wisdom that hopefully that you noted. And, and this is one you may have to listen to again to really 
sit with and ponder over these things. I just love that concept of of that inspiration. Sometimes we hyper focus on the handbook, which you know is good. We need to reference the handbook and have it in our in our purview, but also to consider the needs of the ward and then what, what fills that space, inspiration, and to go to the Lord in prayer and, and ask for the inspiration. I was inspired by this. It's definitely going to impact my personal leadership, and I hope it will impact yours as well for the good. Would you mind uh, dropping this link into an email to another leader that you would anticipate would really appreciate the content of this interview, and uh, maybe we'll get a discussion going. Maybe it's someone you serve with in your ward, and next time you meet up, you can discuss some of the principles and, and maybe the personal application of these principles in your own leadership arena. So send that link off to them, and uh, we really appreciate that. And I remind you once again to text the word LEAD to 474747 in order to subscribe to the Leading Saints Weekly Newsletter. It came as a result of the position of leadership which was imposed upon us by the God of heaven who brought forth a restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when the declaration was made concerning the own and only true and living church upon the face of the earth, we were immediately put in a position of loneliness. The loneliness of leadership from which we cannot shrink nor run away and to which we must face up with boldness and courage and ability.